Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to FICP's podcast series, FICP Focus 45. FICP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FICP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FICP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to FICP's webinar and podcast series, FICP Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Today, we're going to be talking about DEI issues, and especially DEI issues in Australia. In September 2023, the women of IP Down Under made waves with the publication of a new research paper that describes the experiences of women in the IP industry, entitled Invisible Women in Invisible Professions, Voices from Australian and New Zealand Women in Intellectual Property. This article describes the challenges that women working in intellectual property continue to face. We will look at some of the findings in the paper and the panelists will talk about related issues, including why women's experiences are different from those of men's, what they have experienced in their working environments, and recommendations for both employers and employees at IP firms. Our panel today includes Madeline Kelly, a patent attorney, partner, and board member of the independent Australian and New Zealand IP firm, FB Rice. Also as co-chair of the firm's DEI committee, She's responsible for making the firm more accessible, equitable, and inclusive for all stakeholders. Mariam Tabari is a president, principal, patent and trademark attorney at Crisilio IP and the lead lecturer for the patent practice subjects at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's also the co-author of this recently published paper. Finally, Ronel Geldenheis is a patent attorney and principal at Foundry IP. She's a co-chair and founding member of the Australia and New Zealand chapter of CHIPS, an international not-for-profit organization with the mission of advancing and connecting women in technology, law, and policy. Welcome all three to our panel. It's really extraordinary to have all three of you uh, with us today, and I'm very much looking forward to the uh, conversation. Mariam, perhaps we can start with you. As one of the co-authors of the article, what were some of the things that you were looking at when you were when you embarked on this on this study so um essentially it came about because i was interviewing um professor jessica lai who is a professor for um part of her work is to look at ip and gender studies at the university of um victoria in wellington in new zealand and i was interviewing her on her book which is is patenting gendered 
And just through conversations, we started talking about some of the experiences I've had um, as an attorney, you know, I posted about this on LinkedIn where I was once in a cab going to a client meeting and um, the cab driver asked, you know, what we do. And I was with two other male colleagues and they said, we're patent attorneys. And immediately the response was on who's that in the back? Like, is that, is that your girlfriend in the back? So, you know, experiences like that to even things that might seem trivial, like you're at a networking function. And I started to realize that, hang on, women's suits don't actually have pockets. So whilst the men could reach out easily and pull out a business card, I had to fumble around in my bag to find my business card. So, you know, there's there's so many when you start looking at it and then discussing with others such as Renell, we realize that each of us had a story or something that we had realized that was quite different for women. Um, and then we started to speak to our circles and we realized that we weren't alone in a lot of the experiences that, you know, we'd, we'd undergone or we lived through. So um, Jessica, in all her wisdom, said, you know, th- these stories need to be told. It's an anthology on, on, on what has happened in the profession or what may still be happening. Um, and we need to collate these stories and tell them. And so we decided to reach out to women we knew, confidentially having interviews with them. We ended up interviewing 107 women from across the sector. So in Australia and New Zealand, from you know barristers to attorneys to examiners. And we started to really realise that there's some trends and some, and some themes that came through. Um, and, you know, it resulted in the paper that's that's been published and, and papers to come as well. On the FICB Focus 45 uh, series of webinars, we, we've already had a number of conversations, especially regarding DEI issues and the role of women in, in STEM. This is the first time we're really looking at the issue from the perspective of women in, in the IP industry. And some of the issues that you've mentioned already transcend professions. What is it in the IP profession that gives rise to perhaps some unique situations or some unique challenges for women in this profession? That's a really good question. So resoundingly for me, and Renelle might want to um, might, might want to add to this as well, is that I think it's this effect of the double whammy, right? So we know that we've got some diversity issues in the legal profession more generally still, even though the graduates' legal profession, whether it's 50-50 women, sometimes 60% women in, in, in the legal profession, right, graduating through, but we still have diversity sort of issues. And yet in, we've got this other thing on top where with patent attorneys in particular, in particular if you look at engineering, where we've got this sort of still very low rates of women in engineering, you know, across the sector. And so it's this double whammy of not just dealing with the legal profession, but the technology professions as well and the expectations of clients and what clients expect. So there's that on top of it. So, for example, what came through in our research was there are times, unfortunately, where a client actually specifically has asked for a man. You know, women have experienced this or they get looked down upon in a meeting or they, they're the ones that are being asked to grab the coffees or grab the water. Questions are being directed towards the male in the conversation instead of the women in the conversation. So I think that for me was what really came through. And I don't know if Renelle wants to add to that as well in, in terms of... Yeah, I think the factors in both both legs of the profession. So on the one hand, you know, can can they trust you with technology that's complicated? 
and definitely, I mean, you know, I have a PhD in electronics and two months ago I had a client on the phone who said to me, look, this is uh, talking to me about an electronic system that I understood very well and saying, you know, this is very complicated. It took me years to understand it. Do you know, do you, can you understand it? And it's interesting because in the research that we did, we saw these trends where when the women are young, when the attorneys are young, they they don't mind it. They sort of they feel a little bit of a a little bit of a boost when they can say, "Oh yes, I do understand it," and then they they demonstrate their skills after they were assumed not to understand. And so when when the women are young, they they don't they think it's fine, but the novelty sort of wears off. And so because we we went to a lot of effort to interview women of different ages and. A, you know, d- different different sizes of firms and all across the country. So we really tried to have a diverse group of women, but we saw across the board that then as they age, that sort of novelty wore off. And by the time you sort of reach your middle age or your senior in, the, in your career, it's really annoying. It's really annoying when once again, someone says to you, but do you understand the technology? And, you know, I was, I've been sitting in meetings with with men who have you know, colleagues who work in other technology areas, we'd have a client talk to us and they would never, ever question the men about whether they understand the technology. I've never, ever seen any of my male colleagues being questioned about technology. So there's there's that aspect that almost all women experience, especially in in the engineering fields. But then the the, the legal side of it is that the stakes can be quite high, especially when you start looking at litigation. The moment the stakes are higher, we heard multiple stories of the work then being taken away from the women and given to men. Even more junior men or less experienced men because the client often felt that they wanted a man on their side to fight when the stakes are high. So when you're gonna go to to the higher courts or when something is on appeal, they would then go to the men. And so interestingly enough, what we do, I mean, we don't have numbers on this, but certainly anecdotally, you know, a case would be taken away from a woman, given to a man. And then if he fails, no questions were asked. Yeah. But certainly if, if, the, if the women were unsuccessful, the case would be taken away and given to a man. So I think that's what makes it a little bit different in intellectual property is that the two sides of it. Not wanting to state the obvious, but we are in 2023. And we're we're still talking about issues like that, and not in in developing countries. We're talking about issues like that in members of the OECD or or some of the the you know the the more robust economies around the planet. It, it's really disheartening to a certain extent to to hear that we're still having issues like that. Ronell, you, you sort of alluded to the fact that. For, for some of the younger associates or the younger professionals, the women, in some cases, they can sort of take this in stride, if you will, sort of let it roll off their backs. But as they get more experience and as they get you know more senior in the profession, the novelty of that wears off. Is there, or have you, through the, the discussions that you've had, have you been able to perceive or identify that there is a positive change that is that is happening, sort of organically or gradually, or are we nonetheless in 2023 requiring some very specific initiatives or regulation or um, or, or or an environment to to really 
try to overcome these kinds of biases? Well, um, confusingly enough, the answer to both those questions is yes. Um, so yes, we we see some improvement, certainly, because I think there is overall more awareness and more legislation and better policies. Um, so I think a lot of the a lot of the heavy lifting has been done. You know, you see more senior lawyers, you do see more women coming through the ranks, you see um, more partners in the firms, you see more of an awareness and and women can speak up more than they certainly could 10 or 20 years ago. So yes, things are looking better. But on the other hand, we do need more work. In my opinion, from what I've seen, one of the reasons for that is that a lot of it is unconscious bias and unconscious behavior um, just because of the social structures that we live in. So for example, many of the women we spoke to didn't notice things in their workplace mm. until we really sort of prodded and poked. So our interviews were long interviews. They were very, very intimate, very long interviews, hour, hour and a half with someone you'd never met before. And they were telling you about these things that are actually very personal. You know, if you, if you were harassed at work or if you were skipped over on a promotion because of some gendered issue um, or if you felt like you you were not appreciated in your work because of being that that stuff is very intimate it's very personal it's difficult to have those conversations and these women had really you know we saw this we saw this almost more with the very senior, very successful women where they had suppressed their experiences. And they would say, no, we didn't experience anything. Everything was fine. Everything was fine. And then you poke and prod and round about minute number 48 of the interview that it would come out that, oh, yes, there was sexual harassment, but it was just that was just how it was in the time. You'd be like, excuse me, what? And then they talk about it. And so it took a lot of effort to to get people to open up and see and acknowledge what had happened to them. Um, and so because a lot of these things are very difficult to talk about, because you feel embarrassed and you feel like, you know, why I'm competent in my work. I don't need special treatment, right? I don't want anyone to think I have special treatment because then maybe they see me as incompetent. So it's very difficult to talk about. And because people don't talk about about it, there's a lack of awareness. So for example, um, Mariam and I were involved in a panel discussion at the FICPI Australia conference this year in which we spoke about some of these issues. And in the audience, there were a number of FICPI members who who in the Q&A session after, this, after the session actually said they had just never thought about these issues. They had never heard these stories. They were just so unaware because we don't talk about it openly. It's too too hard. So I think what's especially valuable in this work that we've done is we've taken all these all these anecdotes and we've made it into something that's more than just an anecdote. It's not just one woman who was having a bad day and something bad happened to her. We interviewed 107 women. And if 47% of 107 women tell you that they were sexually harassed in the workplace, this is a serious issue. Just because they don't speak up doesn't mean it's not happening. Yeah. And so because these things are flying under the radar, they get missed, but they are so significant because it has so many consequences, one of which being that valuable section of your workforce ends up 
leaving the workforce, for example. We see women moving out of private practice and into in-house roles more often, for example. And one of the reasons is because of the way they get treated. And unless we shine a light on it, and this conversation that we're having now, we need to have this conversation more and all over the place to raise awareness so that people can see and understand what's happening and not what's not being spoken about so that we can figure out ways to deal with it. So I'd like to ask Madeline to chime in on this. As someone who's responsible for a DEI initiatives within the firm, how has the publication of this article been received? How has it been perceived in the industry? The article has only recently been made available. So I think the impact of it is only starting to be felt. I think that there's a lot of people were involved in the interviews and have been waiting for the publication to come out to see how their experience maybe has also kind of matched up with maybe other people's experiences. Um, it's a long article and I think people are, are still absorbing it. Um, for me, what I'm really interested to see is how people who weren't involved in those interviews um, receive it. And whether, as Renal said, at the Figby conference, people seem to be amazed. To me, when I read it, I wasn't amazed at all. It it's, reflects my experience of the profession. So I think it's a very true account of what it's like to be um, in the IP profession as a female. So I'm really interested to hear how um, males receive it and understand it and whether they are aware of those issues that we do face. So I'm certainly not going to come out and, and start speaking for all males in the IP profession. And that's <laughs> really not the point of this conversation. But have any of you had people come up to you following the publication of the article or even before the publication of the article and, and shared stories with you outside of the of the formal interview process that you've had? Um, and, you know, what sort of what sort of, if that's been the case, what sort of advice? What have you told those women that have experienced these these incidents over the years? Well, I think it's important that that they they find somebody to talk to about it, and that that you kind of are um, demonstrating that these things you're you're open to hearing about them. I think that people like like us can do can help with maybe the younger generation that are just facing them and. Um, I think Ronell was making a point, or maybe it was you, Mariam, earlier on about being in meetings and making sure that if, if a young person is looking to speak up, that, that they're given the space and that they're not talked over, things that I think we've all experienced. On the flip side as well, from the, from the client's perspective, I had someone reach out to me who is on the on the client side, so, you know, is someone who seeks IP services. And he said that for such an important profession, and we are, I mean, we'd like to think we are, but we are an important profession in the innovation spectrum um, that, you know, it's just so sad to see this happening. So I think, you know, there's many angles to this. And I think Madeline's right. We've just scratched the surface and Manel's right. We need to have these discussions so that, you know, we, I think I've said this before, I think many attorneys get into this profession because we love innovation. You know, we want to see innovative things out there and so you know it's it forms a part of that picture and and if if a part of the profession is is unhappy or um you know sort of harrowing things are happening then it's actually going to affect innovation so and you know there's so much evidence to point towards that that we need to really sort out i think 
another thing is that the fact that this art, the article in the publication and then the fact that these conversations are being had now a bit a bit more than than before the article in in my experience has sort of opened a door for people to come forward so i've actually had women that i that i don't know at all or have only just briefly met have sent me messages and told me about their experiences like you know a complete stranger sent me this long email with all the stuff that she's experienced that was quite horrific where she said she's so grateful that we're publishing this work so that people know about it because as i've said women don't really talk about it but they but people need to know what's happening i think there is a bit of a a bit of ignorance around how hard it can be for a woman and you know you have a man and a woman doing the same job you have the same clients you have the same working environment you imagine that it's the same and it really is not the same and i think just raising that awareness to help um, to help support people with with their individual experiences brings a um, relief i think to to many women who feel like they weren't really empowered so to, like madeline said to know that next time you sit in a meeting perhaps one of your colleagues will stand up for you when when you're being treated unfairly so one of the things that does happen and this is very difficult for someone to understand who hasn't been in that position but when you when you sort of unexpectedly and unfairly treated in a bad way you can't always respond in the moment so i think if you you know if you are privileged and if you are i'm guessing you know if you if you're a man and you've never experienced this and someone in a meeting sp- speaks over you you're just going to raise your voice and talk but sometimes it's just not that easy you know you get different personalities and quite often a woman will sort of not respond or stand up for herself and then after the fact think oh i sh- I, sh- I should have done it differently but i think if there's a bit more of an awareness that this is a thing that happens then maybe next time this happens in a meeting there will be someone else who recognizes it and then can speak up for them because sometimes in the moment you just caught off guard and you don't stand up for yourself and it doesn't mean that you're not competent because you're not standing up for yourself it just means that in that moment you were caught off guard with by someone's rude behavior and maybe if you have a colleague whether it's a man or a woman junior or senior doesn't matter if you have a colleague who is able in that moment to say hang on she was speaking can we let her finish that goes along it sounds like such a small thing but that goes a long way yeah, I think you 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 alluded to another point of the conversation that I wanted to to sort of address today, which is when we're talking about DEI issues, often one of the f- topics that comes up right away is compensation and the wage gap that exists between women and men who are doing, for all intents and purposes, exactly the same thing, but there is a there is a wage difference between how women are compensated and men are compensated. We've all heard the stories of why that may or may not be. But I think Australia is taking a, a very interesting tack on this. Can can someone talk about the the, the recent initiative uh, regarding this particular issue? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk to that. So in Australia, we have an agency called the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, so WGIA. And that was established back in 2012. And they are really looking to try and, I suppose, push forward women within the work, workplace. And one of the one of the aspects that they have been looking at is the gender pay gap. 
So the gender pay gap is not about men and women being paid the same for the same role. It's about the difference between the average earnings of women and men. So how we value contributions of men and women in the workforce. So at the moment in Australia, um, that gender gap is at 22.8%. And what Wajia is looking to do is to try and um, accelerate employer action to reduce that gap. And recently, earlier this year, Parliament passed um, an act to say that um, employers employing more than 100 employees will now, from 2024, need to publish their, their gender pay gaps. So they'll have an opportunity to um, explain why they might have a gender pay gap and what's contributing to it, but it's going to be publicly available for all, all companies that have more than 100 employees. I think that's, for lack of a better word, very innovative, because I'm not sure that any other jurisdiction around the globe has gone down the same path in terms of forcing employers to be a lot more transparent about how they compensate people. Yet I get the sense that it doesn't answer all of the questions. I don't think it will. I mean, it might be just because I'm a bit cynical, but um, I think Renelle mentioned this a little bit, but, you know, some of these biases are intrinsic. They're built in, right? And uh, until you're aware of it, you really can't make strides to change it. An example is homophily, right? Where, for example, if you're in an interview, you're more likely to hire someone who is like you simply because we are, I mean, I'm biased. Everyone's biased, right? Because you're more likely to think I'm going to get along with this person. So you're more likely to hire someone who has the same educational background as you, who maybe came from the same cultural background as you. You're more likely be to hire that person. And that's, that's known through studies that they've done. So but if you're consciously aware of that, maybe in an interview process, you can go, oh, hang on, let me have a look at this. Um, what about this candidate who's a little bit left field? Maybe they didn't go to the top law school or they have an immigrant background and worked in their mum and dad's shop to pay their way through, you know, or they, they're they slightly different. They don't have the connections. They don't, you know, and maybe I should hire that person because they might bring something different to the team, right? Or if you can, hire both. But, you know, it's that it's that conversation that, you need to be having, and it's those, as Renelle said, those small changes that will push the dial, push the needle, because in an inst- you know, we're not going to get a cultural shift in an instant, but it's it's so important that we're having these discussions because it allows us to become more aware and to kind of make strides in our day-to-day to make those changes. I think that's absolutely true, but really the focus of trying to get, of, of making making this information public is to spread to drive employers to make those changes. So their gender pay is being published. They will then be more inclined to look at why do they have a gender pay gap? What can they do mm. to, to fix that? And one of the things is, well, maybe let's look at how we recruit people. Do we have the proper practices in place to make sure we're not introducing bias at that point? And then looking at various other aspects of the business with a view to try, try and reduce that gender. Definitely. In terms of the the publication of the numbers, or am I correct in understanding that the it's not going to be as granular as looking at you know senior associates or young or mid level associates or young associates? It's going to be like an average firm wide or company wide, yes. right? Yeah, exactly. So I mean, there there are a number of different ways that you can look at 
potentially reducing your your gender pay gap. And one of those would be to try and and make sure that you have more females in your leadership positions in your higher paying roles. But in our industry, we have a lot of administrative staff and the majority of them in, in our firm anyway are female, which then also brings down the average the average uh, pay for females and broadens that gender gap. So as well as looking at maybe trying to get more females into the more senior roles, it's about looking at getting more males into the more administrative roles. So for example, with us, we're looking at trying to reduce our gender pay gap. And one of the ways we're looking at doing that is as opposed to taking the, the traditional way we used to recruit assistants or paralegals, we would go to a female talent pool and recruit from that pool. And um, so we've started a new initiative, which is we're, we're recruiting earlier. So we're recruiting at the, the graduate position for these administrative roles, looking at men and women and trying to bring them in and having a career path within the firm for them as well. So that would that would serve to narrow the wage gap firm wide. And I, and I think it's an excellent first step, clearly. But I think there's still more that need more work that needs to be done in terms of ensuring that the the young women professionals who are entering the profession don't systematically or in greater numbers leave the profession after five, 10, 15 years because of whatever reason they decide to to leave the profession. Some of it is maybe personal choice, but in, in some cases, those choices are sort of maybe forced upon as a is the is a strong word. Absolutely. But but certainly there's there's a there's a path there that there's an off ramp for women professionals to go in house to to do something else as opposed to stay within the firm, become a partner and and eventually Absolutely. lead the firm. And I think the firms are missing out by not having those females get to that position. And I mean, that's um, that's another part of the whole piece is looking at how do we support those females at various stages in their career to make sure that we do manage to get them in through that through that part and into partnerships so the firm can benefit from from their their input and their experience and their view. So Louis Pierre, I'd Sorry. like to there are two things I'd like to just add to the conversation at the point. So the one is in the interviews that we did, one of the patterns that we did see was that generally young women worked in big law and they loved it and it was great. But then as soon as they started family planning or had their first child, they would move either in-house or to a small firm because they realized the working environment in the in the big law firm was not for them. So that was one of the things that we saw. And I think that relates to what you're saying, how the women move. Um, and so one of the follow-up research projects that we're doing, a paper that we'll be publishing fairly soon, is comparing how men move and how women, everyone moves, it's fine. Um, and people move based on their personal circumstances, but men and women move in different ways for different reasons, right? And so that's yeah. a, a follow-up paper that we're going to look at. And that takes me to my next point that I think is an extremely important part of the discussion that I, I'm not sure whether we're ready to have it yet. Um, you know, we, we think we're very modern and we can talk about all sorts of things, but really people need, there's, it's a journey, it's a process for people to get their heads around all these issues. And so you start with the things that are easy to grasp and, and accept before you move on to the next one. But I'll tell you what the next one is. And um, when we were having 
these interviews with the women, I'd have a lot of women who would say, I work in a great firm. In fact, in our firm, there are three female partners who work part-time and work flexibly to care for their families. And then I would ask them how many of the male partners work part-time and flexibly to support their families. And no one would understand why I'm asking the question because how is that relevant at all? Because I want flexibility for women. But the problem is where you have flexibility for women, it implies the role that women have to take within their families and within caregiving. Do children not have two parents? Do the male partners have no caregiving responsibilities? Do the male partners not have families? So when we had this discussion at the FICPI conference recently, we actually had um, a patent attorney who was a man who works part-time and has worked part-time all, all through the, ever since he's had kids, you know, more than 10 years ago. And, um, and he shared his experience and the audience just said it had never occurred to them that it was an option. And this is not because we don't have policies. The firms have the policies, but men don't take it for a number of reasons you know, the general socially accepted behavior, women who who don't mind taking on the mother role, because of course we don't mind taking on the mother role, just how, how you're perceived. Um, and certainly I've, I've spoken to women involved in sort of feminist female organizations telling me stories about the, the junior men that work for them that take time off. And I'm like, you know, that's a bit, it's a bit, um, you know, different, different measures for different people. So you know what? The gender pay gap is not really because the lawyers are men and the support staff are women. That does play into it. The gender pay gap is because women take off a year's for maternity leave. In Australia, it's it's not unusual to take a year. And then they come back part-time. So not only does their salary get impacted by work, by taking time off. So you take you take a, a year step back in your career. So your your next um, raise or your next promotion is a year further away. Women take time off to have children, and then women work part time to take care of their children. So not only is there a pay gap, but the superannuation for retirement gets cut as well. And so if everything's moonshine and roses and you stay together, that's fine. But if like 47% of all marriages apparently end in divorce. If that's your circumstances, then you're doubly screwed because you have, you're earning half the money and you have half the superannuation. So that is the gender pay gap. So we can, we can put band-aids on all these things and say, we're going to hire differently so that our firm looks better. But the real issue that needs discussion is when are wives going to tell their husband, I need you at home too. Yes, I can work part-time because I love our children, but you know what? I want you to work part-time too. And in fact, while I'm taking maternity leave, how about you pay extra into my superannuation? And when are the female partners who work part-time going to look at the male partners who don't work part-time and say, when are you going to step up and support your family? So, and we need the men to be an example. So I'll tell you a story. I'm sorry, I'm taking up a lot of time now, but I'll tell you a story. So my husband's very supportive. So he does a lot around the house. He does more than 50% of the child caring and everything. And um, he's in a very senior role in his job. And so when he's having a meeting and he's driving our kids around, he will have his 
meeting on speakerphone in the car and he he tells his colleagues and his the guys working for him look i'm taking my kids to the, to school and everyone knows but in the evenings sometimes my husband cooks dinner and he says to me he can't actually he he puts the video off and he doesn't tell his colleagues what he's doing because it's socially acceptable to be a dad who drops kids off and and does the run around on the way work to the, on the way to the office on the way back but it's not socially acceptable to be the one cooking dinner for for some reason bizarrely so i said to him you know what you are the manager you don't have to t- tell anyone but i'm telling you you have to tell everyone you have to be the example turn your video on so that that 25 year old guy whose wife is about to have a baby can see that it's normalized mm. you can work part time you can work flexibly take time off when you're having a baby take time off to take care for your of your children because that's the gender pay gap is that absolute socially ingrained value system so ronell's right there's a there's a macro economic thing at play and then there's the micro which is the ip profession if we look at it and the macro economic thing that's at play in terms of the gender pay gap is because in australia at least we have a very high rate of um homelessness amongst women over 50 and that's because you know suddenly you might have someone who has is a stay at home mom who hasn't worked and suddenly something happens to their husband or their partner or they have a divorce they've got no superannuation they've got no skills they can't find a job so you know there is a macroeconomic well, let me happening. just put that in perspective let me just put that in perspective australia has an unemployment of 4% or something it's nothing right everyone has a job in australia so the fact that we have hundreds or thousands of homeless women is a very significant statistic and just to pick up on that and because we're living in in somewhat similar situation here in in montreal the rates of homelessness have have increased tremendously it's become a a real like a a, a real problem it was always a problem clearly but it it's it's become exacerbated in the past few months so so i think you're right and i think we have very low unemployment here in quebec and in canada generally as well but having an overrepresentation of women being homeless homeless is a is a symptom that needs to be addressed it it's part of a much greater problem and 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 we need to pay attention to it it is it's a greater problem and i would forgive anyone for thinking but you know what are we going to do we're in ip we're a small small industry in comparison right but the thing is i'm going to put it out there that we love innovation why can't we think outside the box here and really look at our systems our structures i mean what Madeline what you're talking about with FBI is what they're doing it's a start why not let's have a look at this and really look at what's happening so that we can start maybe leading the way what our paper is showing is that we're not we're not leading the way we're actually behind I think you hit on a very interesting point which is of course this is part of a a much bigger issue that that concerns society generally and not just the IP profession or not just Australia or New Zealand or Canada but bringing it back to to the ip profession we all understand it's a liberal profession we all understand that there's a there's an inherent drive to generate profit for whoever owns the firm whether or not it be partners or a large institutional investor 
how do we reconcile that need or that drive for profit with rebalancing, if you want, the roles of, of men and women within the family, within the firm itself? Because the because there's an inherent tension there. We've been doing it this way for a hundred years. Something's going to break at some point. There's going to be some tension before we we find equilibrium. But what are some of the steps we can start taking now? Look, I don't think we're going to have all of the answers. That's a really good question, to be honest. But I would say that we've just got to start thinking outside the box. And the forums such as FIGP is a fantastic place to do that. You know, let's try different things. Our profession is so ripe for job sharing, right? So if you've got a male and a female both part-time because they both have caring responsibilities, it doesn't have to be for young children. It could be for elderly parents, right? If you've got caring responsibilities or other, other things that happen, then then maybe our profession is ripe for it. We've got the technology. It's not a it's not something that you have to be in an office all the time. So, you know, it, why not try different models, different billing structures, different models, different ways of working where you can tag team with someone. I mean, this is, I think this is what I'm saying by being innovative. We've really got to sort of push that boundary and think, well, why not? All those suggestions that Maria made were good suggestions. And you know what? You need someone like Mariam at the table to make those suggestions. So, to answer your question about the the economic reality, because, you know, what's the bottom line? Um, And there is extensive evidence to show that diversity feeds into productivity. So the more diversity you have in your decision-making and the more diversity you have around the table, the more ideas you have. If you only have one way of thinking, you only come up with one type of solution. Hmm. So where you have any... And, and I mean, I'm not just talking about the social, these social problems that we're talking about today. I'm talking about any business problems that you have. The, the more diversity you have around the table, the more that feeds into your, your um, productivity and your economic viability. And so I think that is where the inclusivity comes from, from diversity. So you have diversity and you need to include your diverse workforce in your decision making. Um, I will, so that's the bottom line. Yeah. The, the other thing I would add to that is that we've seen examples where innovation or inventions are ignored because the people that are looking at them are not diverse. So you've already limited your client pool, talking about economy, because people can't see the innovation. It's a great example in femtech, happens all the time, not only in the patent profession, but unfortunately, even preceding that in the venture capital profession. And so, you know, technology is not being funded because people don't understand the purpose of them. And then what happens is that if they get through that hurdle, they get a bit of funding, they get to the patent attorney and the patent attorney is like, I'm not sure if there is an invention here, right? And then they don't get through there. And then they get don't get through the examination. If they get through the patent attorney, they don't get through the examiner because the examiner doesn't understand. And, and you see this, there is an example of this happening in femtech. So already, if you don't have diversity, you've limited your pool of innovation and invention that you can protect as well. I'd like to ask Madeline to, to sort of chime in on this because, you know, you're part of the DEI initiatives at your firm. What are some of the initiatives that you've taken or some of the gestures that the firm has taken that have made a difference? 
it doesn't need to, to have been like a revolutionary difference, but just, you know, baby steps. What are the things that you've done as a firm that you say, this is a success? We we really nailed it on this one. I think that's a really good question. Um, a couple of years ago, we put together a gender equity plan to try and look at all of these issues. And it seems like such a big problem. There's just, there, there, are, there are issues, bigger issues that are much greater than us. There are societal issues. There's ingrained stereotypes that, you know, are very difficult to undo. Going back to Ronell's comment about, you know, litigation when, when big cases are taken off females and given to the men because it's got too important. And while everyone feels like men and women are equal, they can all do the same job. Really, when it comes to crunch time, there's this ingrained belief in some people that, no, the man is going to do the better job. I'm going to pass it over to the man. And I think that from my generation, that's certainly what we were seeing when we were young. You know, all of the lawyers on television were men. All of the bosses were men. All of the leaders were men. And that goes back to that, you know, if if you can't see it, you can't be it idea. So, I mean, it really is crucial for the next generation that they do see females in those leadership roles. And then bringing it back to what we're trying to do at FB Rice, one of the one area we looked at is that kind of senior associate level females. And a lot of them are the people who are having those caring responsibilities at home. They're maybe going on various rounds of, of um, parental leave. And one of the things that we wanted to do was try and figure out how that's impacting their ability to progress. So particularly, um, they, they go out, they take six months or a year off and they come back. What are the problems that they face in leaving and coming back? Um, in terms of their caseload, who's managing their, their business. They've built up these great clients. Is there a plan in place to make sure they're being looked after and that they're going to get them back when they come back into the business a year later, for example, and that the clients are aware of what's going on and that they're not going to have to start from scratch when they come back in. Um, looking at ways of making it easier for them to come back, maybe ramping up their um, KPIs, not having them you know, back to work straight away and expecting them to be hitting the ground running, talking to them about how much um, involvement or interaction they want during their maternity leave or parental leave, whether it's none or whether they want to be involved in some of some client um, meetings, just really understanding that piece. So talking to people who have been on parental leave and come back from parental leave or are going, but also talking to their supervisors about what's worked and what hasn't worked. And right. trying to put together a really, you know, tight piece and how we can make that better. I think it's also really important that the message is coming down from top, that we're really, really serious about this and we're looking into it. And it goes back to that economic piece. It'll If we have more pe- females in those leadership positions, productivity will increase, profit will increase. And if we can get everybody on board with that, it's not only just the right thing to do, it's actually the right thing to do for the business as well. And getting everybody to understand that, I think, gets more buy-in and more motivation and drive behind the whole initiative. You you mentioned something that I think is very, very important, and that is that these kinds of initiatives need to come from the top as well as from the bottom. They need to be supported and they need to be communicated by the senior partners, by the executive committee, by the managing partner. But it has to come from those people specifically. You can't rely on having Madeline, for example, you know, 
carrying that message all the time alone. It it needs to be articulated by the decision makers. Otherwise, I fear that you lose some of the credibility and you're you 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 may be paying lip service to to the initiative and and having a, a negative impact as opposed to a positive one. Would would you agree, Madeline? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important that that everyone is is behind that message. Yeah. And I I mean, again, one of the other things is that that gender bias and ingrained stereotypes that we understand. I mean, we've done quite a bit on we've had external people come in and talk to us about gender bias and unconscious bias, but it's not enough to do it once and tick the box and go, right, we've had our session on that. It's all done and dusted. It's so ingrained in our society. It needs to be continually revisited and talked about and and questioned and making sure that any of those decisions that you are making, you're, you're, you're bearing that all in mind because Mariam, as you said at the outset, we all have it. It's not just men. We all have these ingrained um, stereotypes. And I think the other thing also is, you know, apart from the stereotypes, and I think it was Miriam that alluded to it earlier in the presentation or in our discussion, and it's the it's the microaggressions, right? It's it's realizing that the things that you say, the way that you act, the things that you do are in fact microaggressions. And it's the accumulation of these little microaggressions that really creates a problem. And and to raise awareness again to to come back on the on the issue of repeating the message and continuing to talk about it and not just doing a big a big fufa at one point uh you know once a year or once every two years, but it's it's repeating that message constantly, constantly, constantly. Definitely. Listen, this has been a absolutely fascinating conversation and i i want to thank mariam ronell and madeline for for participating in this this has been you know you you've put yourself out there you're you're sharing your stories you're sharing other people's stories through the article through this this webinar fikpi has a role to play in continuing to raise the awareness continuing to provoke these kinds of discussions and i think on behalf of everyone who's listening and on, on behalf of Fikpi, thank you very, very much for, for doing this. I think your your contributions are, you may not see the immediate results right away. I think we'll it's the first we'll step, it. right? It's the, yeah. it's let's start, let's have the conversation, let's continue the conversation, not just through webinars, but at conferences, at other events. And and continue doing this, and and I think I think fundamentally we are on on the right path. But there's, you'll agree with me, probably quite a lot of work yet to do. I just wanted to say thank you for giving us um, this platform as well to continue the conversation. Yeah, definitely. Look, and... I'm just I'm just the host in this. I'm you three are the stars of this conversation, and and I think you've articulated extremely well where the some of the issues lie and some paths that can be looked at in terms of trying to continue and improve some of the conditions for people around the globe, you know, taking Australia as a, as an example and, and building on it. Um, again, I, I want to thank all three of you. This has been really absolutely wonderful. And I want to thank our attendees and uh, we'll be seeing you or speaking to you at another session at some point. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.